You want to turn with me to First Chronicles, chapter seventeen. As we continue our study through First Chronicles together, we're looking at the time of David's reign here. Now, David has just brought the ark uh, back to Jerusalem, again wanting to usher back in the opportunity for the presence of God to be manifest among the people there on the mercy seat of the ark. And it seems now as David has done this, he's brought the ark back up to Jerusalem. Uh, A time of great celebration and worship happened there in chapter 16. And as we come to chapter 17, we now read here in verse 1 that it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. So uh, at this point, David, we see here, kind of moved in his heart uh, to desire to do something on behalf of the Lord again to honor him. It's interesting, we kind of almost catch A little insight here, we get a snapshot into a conversation that was happening between David, and interestingly enough, verse 1 tells us, between someone who seemed to be a close comrade, maybe a friend, an associate of David, this man who appears at times in David's life and ministry called Nathan the prophet, and I like to see this picture here, because here's David, he's a a king over a nation, he's a high-ranking political official, and here's David spending time together with those who were prophets of God. And to me, I, I find that a very beautiful thing to see that here is David as a leader, a national leader, and in the midst of those things, he's spending time together with godly individuals. He has sort of, if you would, maybe a part of his cabinet structure, those around him who are willing to speak the word of God into his life, uh, maybe on a, at times, not only personal level, but maybe giving national uh, direction, sharing the things, messages from God, and we see both taking place. Remember, it's Nathan the prophet who ultimately rebukes David at a very low point in his life morally and kind of challenges him regarding some of the sin and wrongdoing in his life. But it seems there was this relational connection. And we find them here having another conversation. David, it says at this time, in a time when he's dwelling there in his own house. And remember, David had this beautiful palace-like structure made of cedar. And that was uh, really quite extravagant in that day to have a house that was lined with cedar. And as David's sitting there, he kind of feels like there's this inequality. He looks around and he's thinking, wow, I have this wonderful residence that I dwell in. And, you know, here I am. I'm only the, the king of the people of Israel. And yet... Yet the king of kings, the Lord, uh, the place where his presence is manifest there at the ark, the ark, he says, is, is just dwelling in a, a tent-like structure. And so David's heart is stirred. He loves the Lord, as we've seen and talked about. And he always wants to do what would please the Lord and honor the Lord. So this idea comes upon his mind, this impression comes upon his heart, where he has this desire to want to do something greater for God. He wants to build God. He's thinking, well, if if I would have a, a meeting place like this and a dwelling place, then certainly God as the king of the universe is worthy of so much more. Now understand, 
ultimately it is God's heart and desire that a temple, a permanent temple, would be established in Jerusalem. And David seems to discern this, and you have to keep that in mind as we go through this, because remember we're going to see the Lord is going to kind of decline David's offer, but it wasn't that God was saying this is not in accordance with my will and plans. Uh, It just wasn't per se for David to actually be the individual to construct the temple, nor was it at this juncture uh, the right timing for this to actually come to pass there would be some more warfare and things that would take place and ultimately it would be during a time of peace and tranquility in the nation that the temple would be built and that would be under solomon's reign the next generation if you would that israel would experience historically so it was a little bit of a timing issue and it was ultimately that god had sovereignly determined for a different individual to accomplish that particular work or thing of god but david has this idea he proposes it he's kind of projecting this in his insinuation when he says this to Nathan the prophet and Nathan verse 2 hearing David say this knowing how much David loves the Lord he says David do all that is in your heart for God is with you now I think Nathan was trying to be an encouragement I think Nathan deeply respected the incredible love that David had for God I mean think about what just happened in the previous chapters as David made this incredible effort to bring the ark back into Jerusalem and there's all this worship and David's wanting to honor God and bless God so Nathan the prophet can clearly see hey this man who the Bible ultimately calls by God's spirit giving him that label and title that he's a man after God's own heart Uh, So Nathan understands that David has a great heart for the Lord. So as he just hears this thought of, wow, building God a temple, building God a beautiful temple whereby his presence might dwell in and he might get all the glory and the honor that he rightly deserves as king over all kings. Nathan hears this and he's thinking, wow, this has got to be God. I mean, that's a wonderful idea. You want to do something great like that for God? You want to do something to honor and bless God and further help his people in the work of his spirit? Nathan just hears this as a servant of the Lord, and he says, David, fantastic. I just do everything that's in your heart. Let's do it. And he says, God's with you. It's evident God's hands upon you and that God is with you in the things you're doing. So he just kind of instantaneously encourages David to do this. We're going to see the errors that unfortunately... Though it was a very good idea and even a godly idea, at this point in time, it wasn't directly in alignment with God's idea. And there can be times in our lives when we can have a really good idea, nothing wrong with it. We can even have a a pretty godly idea. Maybe it's something that we want to do for the Lord or that would seem to align with the purposes of the Lord and what God's will may be in a situation. And to some degree this was, but yet sometimes that still may not specifically be what God's idea is in that given circumstance, whether it's just a timetable, whether it's the way that would come to pass, whether it be through one individual as compared to another individual or just how the situation would unfold as far as, again, the timetable or when it would come to pass or how the process would actually happen. And so, therefore, we have to be careful sometimes. We have to be careful that when someone else maybe throws out an idea that we don't just too quickly say, hey, do that. Praise the Lord, man. That's, that's great. Go for it. Instead, we should be more inclined, understanding God's sovereignty, say, hey, you know what? That sounds like a really wonderful idea. I'm going to be praying for you that the Lord's will be done. I'm going to be praying for you, and, and why don't we pray and ask and see, okay, that's a great idea, but uh, let's see if that's God's idea. 
You know, but there are a few times when I've talked to different individuals over the past, you know, 20 plus years who maybe had a heart to go out as a missionary or church planning and they share their heart. And, and I know I don't always have the gift of encouragement, my wife tells me, but, uh, and I've said to them at times, look, that really sounds like, you know, that's a wonderful idea, but we really ought to pray about whether or not that's God's idea. It's great that you have that idea, but now let's ask if that's God's idea before we just launch into that or we just jump forward into that. And, and we can all make that mistake. You know, we want to be encouraging and helpful. And I think that's what Nathan wanted to do here in a sincerity. So he says, David, just go for it. He gives David kind of the green light. David thinks he, he always hears from God, typically through Nathan. So this is where a little of the difficulty comes in. He says, David's God's with you. Go for it. David's thinking, hey, there's the word of the Lord. Verse three, but it happened. And that's always tough after you open your mouth and say something, that night, notice, that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. So take notice, the word of man, the word of Nathan, and men are always infallible, and sometimes we can say things in good intention, and we can actually misguide somebody. Uh, been there, done that myself. I'm sure you have as well. Even sometimes just wanting to be overly helpful or encouraging and never, well, I don't want to be a downer. I don't want to discourage somebody. And so we just, hey, that's great. God's going to bless that. Do that. Just go for it. And, and now it says here that that was the word of man. But verse three says, but that night the word of God came to Nathan. Uh, and sometimes we would perhaps, like Nathan here, be much wiser to learn the lesson where maybe sometimes we just, hey, tell people we're going to pray for them. And maybe that, that, sounds like that, could, that sounds like that could be the Lord. But why don't you now go and seek the word of God? Why don't you go seek the literal word of God? Go seek the word of God and see if God speaks to you directly from his word and gives you clear direction, a, a word from the scripture that you know for certain is from him so that you can know it's the word of the Lord. And again, uh, here Nathan, it says that night as he goes back, whatever, probably retires to his own quarters, it says the word of God now comes to Nathan saying, look, you need to go and tell my servant David uh, you misguided him. What you told him to do wasn't what I want him to do. He says, you need to go and tell him, thus says the Lord. Don't think about and listen to what Nathan said. This is what I'm saying. Go and tell him, this is my word. You shall not build me a house to dwell in. Some say that the Hebrew construct there is literally, you know, shall not build me the house to dwell in. The idea is implying the actual temple, that there was a sense that God was going to do this, but again, it was just going to happen in a different way than David envisioned it. It was going to happen in a different way in that Solomon would actually be the one to build it, his son, uh, rather than David, and that it was going to happen at a different timetable. He says, verse 5, going on, for I have not, God says, dwell in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle, that is from one dwelling place to another. Wherever, verse six, I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? How low maintenance God is. 
you know, here people, well, we need palaces of cedar and this and that. And, and God says, well, did I ever ask for a house of cedar? Uh, God says, I, look, all throughout time and history, he says, up to this point, my only primary concern was I just wanted to dwell in the midst of my people. And he, so he's here, Nathan, the prophet, again, this is a whole message he's receiving from the Lord. It's going to say in verse 15 that he goes and re- reports and kind of gives back this whole message to David. We're kind of stopping and expositing some things in the midst of it here. But the first thing that God kind of reminds Nathan here that he needs to go tell David, is he says, tell him, look, you know, I have been with my people everywhere they've traveled. And he says, up till this point, I've always dwelt in the tabernacle. Remember, that was the tent-like structure that they would take up and they would move on to a new location as they traveled around as pilgrims. And then they would set it back down and set it all back up again. And they would put the ark and all the furnishing in. They'd be there for a period of time, might be a week, might be a month. And then when the glory cloud would move and the presence of God showed them to move on, they would move on to a new location. And God says, from tent to tent, from one dwelling place to another, wherever, he says, I've moved about with all Israel. I've never told anyone who was shepherding my people, Moses or anyone, listen, when are you going to build me a permanent place, man? When are you going to give me an upgrade? When am I going to get out of this low-income housing and give me something a little nicer? I need a cedar house here. I, I, need, I need something a little... Don't I deserve a little bit more? I mean, it's amazing how we feel like we deserve more than God does sometimes. But here he says, look, I've, I've moved about with my people and God's saying, I've never complained about the accommodations. That's what God's saying. I never one time ever throughout history thus far complained about the accommodations. I just wanted to move about and be together with my people. And what a wonderful encouragement it is to know that those kind of things, honestly, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do the best to honor the Lord because when Solomon builds the temple, it's an incredible structure. And and I think it was done to the glory of God. And I think that when we have the ability and it's in line with God's purposes, we should do what we do well and under the Lord and glory under the Lord. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with those kind of things, but how wonderful to realize that those things aren't required from God's perspective. That here, from tent to tent in all different locations, God says, I moved about all around with the people and I just wanted to be in their presence. It did not matter to God if they were in the middle of the wilderness or in a tent or where they were. That didn't hinder or restrict God's presence. And let us never think that a location or a facility or any of these kind of things, you know, that somehow that can restrict or hinder the presence of God's spirit. God's spirit can move in any situation. You know, some of you, I'm sure, have perhaps maybe gone on a missions trip before or been in other locations and territories. I've had some of the most wonderful worship experiences uh, in some of the most uh, bare bones, rough, rural, uh, low income scenarios in countries, third world countries, where people love and they're worshiping God and the presence of God is very powerful in their midst. Uh, and they're meeting in something that is, you know, quite substandard to what most of us meet in in American worship assembly places. And yet the, the Lord's presence is powerful among them. And uh, so here the Lord's just saying, it's about my presence. That's what makes things matter. And he says, I, I've never asked for a house of cedar. Verse 7, he says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is what I want you to to tell him in light of his desire. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people 
Israel. So God reminds David from where he had come from. God says, look, you're right now the king of Israel. You're the ruler of my people, Israel. You have the highest ranking position at that time. And he says, and remember where you came from. I took you from the sheepfold, from following around the sheep as a shepherd. Now, we have to understand, may not quite translate in our mind, to be a shepherd was basically, in essence, you could say like the lowest form of occupation or work that you could think of in that type of a society, in, the, in that culture. So, again, I, I'm not going to try and pick or select, you know, what job particularly might you think of in the American culture that like, well, that is like the, whatever, that's the bottom of the barrel. If you got to work that kind of job or that's what your occupation is like, that is the lowest uh, that's what being a shepherd was in that culture. Shepherds were despised. They were looked down upon. They were considered, I mean, the, 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 the ragamuffin bunch. Nobody trusted shepherds. I mean, that was a very, very low form of work and occupation. The lowest in the culture shepherds were in that day. And so God is saying, look, David, I took you from the lowest possible place and snatched you out of that and exalted you and blessed you and now you're the king of Israel. I've promoted you and exalted you that far. And he's just reminding David how much God had done in his life. And, and truly, look, in the same way, think of what the Lord has done in you and I's lives. Think of where we were. And it may not be occupationally. Maybe the Lord has done some wonderful things and praise the Lord if that's the case. But think of maybe what station you were in your life at one point in time and where you were. And from there, the Lord took you and rescued you and drew you out of that and put his hand upon your life and has been blessing and exalting you. And think of the high station and status you have now, a child of God, kings and priests, the Bible say that we are spiritually unto the Lord our God and, and the incredible change. And he says, David, I took you from such a lowly place and made you to be ruler over my people Israel. He says, verse 8, And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and made you a name like the name of the great men who are on earth. So he says, David, not only did I raise you up from such a low spot to such a high place of elevation, but he says, I've been with you wherever you've gone. David, the hills, the valleys, the times when you were on the run in the wilderness, the times when you had nothing to, to you know, hold in your hands, you were living in caves. And you were wandering from cave to cave, living like day-to-day -day existence, wondering when your next meal was going to come from because times are so hard and Saul was trying to kill you. And he says, I've been with you wherever you have gone. And boy, is that not true of all of our lives? Think of the different times and seasons we've all gone through in our lives and the Lord has been with us wherever we have gone, whether geographically, whether circumstantially, the hills, the valleys, the different places we've been in our life, some of the hardest, most difficult times when it seemed like our life was hanging by a thread and the Lord was with us. Wherever we've gone, wherever we've been, he's continued to just be with us and preserve us through those things and helping us to overcome the, the different enemies in our life that were trying to destroy us, even as David had many times enemies trying to destroy him. Moreover, he says, verse 9, and I will appoint a place. So notice, this was in alignment with God's heart ultimately. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place 
of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue, God says, all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. So the Lord is declining David's offer to construct the temple for God, to build God a house. And as the Lord gives him these promises and says, look, David, I do plan on doing these things. It's just not you that I plan on doing it through specifically. But he says, David, you're concerned about what you want to do for me. He says, David, I need to tell you, I actually want to do something for you. I actually want to do something even better for you than you could ever possibly do for me. And and again, here God is putting this reality into place again, that it is never ultimately the most concerning to God about what we would do for him. What God's concerned about most is what he can do for us. And he says to David here, I'm declining your offer for you to build me a house. But he says, David, I, I don't want you to think I'm disappointed. He says, David, the reality is, I actually want to do something really wonderful for you. You're thinking about doing something for me. David, I'm sorry, I can't let you outdo me like that. I'm God. I want to do something for you that will incredibly bless you and enrich your life and and bring so much more wonderful experiences. He says, I tell you, the Lord will build you a house. And the idea there is not a physical house, but a dynasty. The idea is that the Lord is going to build an incredible dynasty through David's rulership and descendants. He goes on, verse 11, to speak of this. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, when you die, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne. Now take notice, the language here begins to start forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever again. And his throne will be established, notice, forever. So God now is giving to David this promise And making it evident to David by way of revelation, David, you wanting to build me a physical house, David, I want to build you a lasting house and dynasty forever. David, it is through your family line that I want to bring the Messiah, the Savior. He says, upon your throne, from your seed and your descendants, one's going to raise up after you. And he says, he's going to build me a house. Now, of course, in the specific context, he's referring to Solomon and how Solomon would be the chosen of God to, to build that structure. But more than that, the spiritual house, the household of faith, which would ultimately come not through Solomon, but through David's descendants and a son of David way, way further down, born through the Virgin Mary, the son of David, Jesus Christ, that it would be through the lineage and the family line of King David's descendants that the Savior, the Messiah, would be brought into the world. And so we continue to read of this rulership and the throne of David being forever, not the physical throne, but the literal throne of through his family bloodline, the Savior would come into the world, an eternal rulership. 
that from David's family that would come to pass. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see references to this reality that through David's family, the Savior, the eternal throne, the eternal reign of Christ forever. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says it this way, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little, and remember Bethlehem is where the area where David was from, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, just a very insignificant village there in the midst of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, God says, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So God there, through Micah, speaking of how out of Bethlehem in Judah, which is where David as well was from, that from that area, so insignificant on the map, these humble beginnings that God was going to bring one, a natural descendant who was of the lineage of David's family line, but more than that, one who would be ruler of Israel, whose spiritual and eternal descendancy would be from everlasting that is from the eternal dimension jesus christ as isaiah 9 speaks about unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and upon the government shall be upon his shoulders that he's the prince of peace everlasting father and again there's that same idea of jesus's humanity and jesus's deity unto us a child is born There's his humanity. Jesus was born a child through the womb of a virgin woman. But it also says, but unto us a son is given. That is, God was giving his own son from everlasting, from the eternal dimension into this world through David's line to actually have a kingdom, verse 14 says, that would last forever and that his throne, the throne of Christ, shall be established forever. So David, you have to imagine, all of Israel long for the opportunity to have the Messiah, the promised Savior Messiah that God told him he was the people he was going to send come through their family line. And David has just found out through your family, David. Through your family, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring the Messiah through your descendants. So verse 15 says, according to all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke these things to David. And you have to imagine how overwhelming that it was for David to hear this. And it's interesting that Second uh, Chronicles chapter 6, when Solomon actually does go about starting to construct and build the temple, he speaks there of something else that God said to David in the midst of these things not recorded here. In that Second Chronicles chapter 6, it tells us that God said to David, whereas it was in your heart to build me a temple for my name, he says, you did well that it was in your heart. And that God was blessed and rewarded and honored just the desire in David's heart even though he never did it. The desire alone was what was rewarded by God. And that's a really encouraging thing because there may be times in our lives where like David wanting to build the temple, you may have a desire in your heart. And though you have the desire in your heart, you may never be the one to actually do it or carry it out or fulfill it. But God says, I reward just the desire alone. You know, there are people, I've heard stories, perhaps you have too, who maybe they had a desire to go on the mission field. And they had a strong desire to be a missionary. But then life happened and they got married and they had children and it wasn't possible for them to go on the mission field. But ultimately what they did as the result of that desire in their heart say, okay, well, if I can't go, what I can do is I can become a facilitator 
of putting other people on the mission field and sustaining other people who are missionaries doing that work. And God says, look, the very fact that you had that desire alone, it doesn't matter if you're the one that carried it out. The desire alone, God says, it's good that you had that desire in your heart. And there may be things that you have in your heart tonight that are desires that God says, you know what, I am pleased alone just that you would have the desire to do that. The fact that you would have that desire in your heart, God says, that blesses me. And I'm going to reward you just for that desire that you have within your heart. And there may be things in your past that maybe you had a desire to do, but it's just never come to fruition. Look, don't be discouraged over that. Know that God sees and saw the desire in your heart, and he's going to reward that desire alone. He said that to David. And so David here gets this news. David, you're not going to be the one to build the house for me. Your son Solomon will. And more than that, David, I'm going to build a dynasty, an eternal dynasty and rulership through your throne as the Messiah comes to you through your family line. Now, David, hearing these things, understanding what God was saying, verse 16, his response, it says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. You know, whenever something kind of pretty heavy happens like this, that's a good thing to just go do. I mean, think of it. David might be struggling with a little bit of disappointment. God told him no, right? We, none of us like being told no from the time we're about one and a half, and some of us never grow out of that, right? And yet God tells us no. God's a good parent, and any good parent will at times tell their child no if it's in the best interest and better wisdom of the parent. So God's told him no. And so that's a little bit of a disappointment. Sometimes we wrestle with disappointment. Our expectations don't come to pass that we had for certain things, as well as the fact God has just blown David's mind by not just telling him no, but being incredibly gracious and kind in the process. He says, David, I'm telling you no to this, but when I tell you what I am going to do, <laughs> and then he unloads the whole thing on him about bringing you know, the, the, the Messiah through his family line that he's been chosen for this from his throne. David is just mesmerized, and he just does, so he just goes in, he just sits quiet before the Lord. And he just has to think through these things. And sometimes that's a good thing to do, just go and sit before God, spend some time in his presence alone with him and look what David begins to do he just starts to talk to God he says verse 16 Lord who am I O Lord God and what is my house that you have brought me thus far I mean David just again thinking of where he came from as a shepherd boy and I think at this point even when he's the king of Israel in David's heart he still just sees himself as a shepherd he's just thinking are you kidding me who am I Lord and I like what he says, who am I, Lord, he says, that you've brought me this far, that you've already brought me this far. He, he's astonished how far the Lord's already brought him. And look, you may not tonight be where you would like to be, but you're not where you were. You're not where you were. I mean, think of where you were. And, and truth be told, think about how far. Just ponder it. Maybe you need to sit before the Lord and think about that for a little bit tonight. Think of how far the Lord has brought you at this point already. And, and there's something very humbling about it. Lord, who am I that you brought me this far? Oh, Lord, I can't believe how far you've brought me from a year ago or five years ago or, or 20 years ago. Lord, it's incredible how far you've brought me. 
And David here, just humbled by the work of God in his life. Lord, who am I? I don't deserve this, that you brought me this far already. And yet this, he says, verse 17, was a small thing in your sight. In other words, Lord, that's just insignificant in comparison to what you've promised to yet still do for me. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. So he says, Lord, you've done so much and brought me so far and you're telling me that you're going to do way more? You're telling me you're going to do even greater things in my life? And this is why David is shocked and astonished because the reality is that he realizes God's just promised to do way, way more than God already has in his life. And you know what? The Bible tells us that the Lord takes us all from glory to greater glory. That this is what the Lord does. The Lord takes us from where we're at, but he's progressively always taking us further and further. And look, the reality is, even if you feel like, well, I don't feel like God took me much further, he's going to take me much further. Trust me, if you know Jesus Christ, when you close your eyes, you're going to go, wow, Lord. All that stuff, just when I lived with you in my humanity, that was just a small thing. This is much greater. This is far more wonderful. You know, again, as, as Paul spoke about heaven, remember, he said, I depart to, uh, desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And see, God has way more that he's going to do in our life that supersedes many times above and beyond what we could ask or think but his power working in us. But the reality is one day he's going to release us from these bodies and the greater thing he has for us, the eternal things he has for us, are going to cause us like David to just, if we ponder that reality, think, oh my goodness, Lord, yet you've spoken of so much more. The Bible says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even ponder the things God has prepared for us because of his great love for us. So verse 18, David says, what more can David say to you for the honor of your servant, for you know your servant. The idea is David was just speechless at all that God had done, all that God was promising, all that God was going to do in his own. He says, what more can David say to you? The idea is David's, he's lost for words. Now, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. When you make somebody like David speechless, that's pretty powerful. But truth be told, God has an ability to do that. Sometimes he is just so incredible and can do things so wonderful in such a way in our lives that he has the ability where, where he kind of brings us to a place where worship reaches like its zenith, where you just kind of sit before the Lord and you're, Lord, I don't even have words. I, I don't even have words. Just your presence, your, your goodness is so overwhelming. What could I even say? The human language isn't even sufficient to thank you or to praise you enough for what you've done. And David, again, recognizing how unworthy he was, he says, verse 18 there, for you know your servant. It's not just that what, what God was doing for him. He says, Lord, you know who I am. <laughs> You're aware of who the real deal is here. The people may look at me one way, but Lord, you know your servant. Psalm 139 says that God is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Before a word's on our tongue, he knows it. God searches us. He knows our hearts, our minds. He knows the thoughts that go through our head, the things, again, that nobody else sees. 
That as God sees and knows everything about every little dark, evil, wicked, selfish, greedy, go on with the adjective nook and cranny inside of you and me. He knows his servant. He knows us. And, and we're the only other one who has kind of a general sense of that. God even knows me better than I know myself. And, and, and David's saying, Lord, th- this is astonishing when I think about who I am. Lord, you know me. Are you sure you want to do that for me? You know me. And so David is just shocked that God would be so gracious and kind in light of who he is. He's just blown away by the love and the grace that God was pouring out upon him. He says, verse 19, O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you, and that's true for certain, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like, he says, your people Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt for you have made your people Israel your very own people forever and you Lord have become their God so he says Lord we are such a blessed people he says what other nation has God done what he done for the nation of Israel where he actually went and particularly sought to redeem and rescue them from Egypt, to redeem them, to make them his own special people. And the great and awesome deeds that were done, the miracles and the wonders to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And as David pondered that, he was just astonished how much God had done to to make them such a treasured, special people. And again, there was nothing unique or in and of themselves innately special about them. It was just God's grace. Was God's kindness. And in so many ways, it's just reflective and, and is a type and a picture of the same work of salvation that God has done in all of our lives. We were in bondage and slavery in the world, in Egypt, under a taskmaster, Satan, and living just selfish and miserable day by day, enslaved to our own sin. And God graciously had compassion on us and broke in and redeemed us and rescued us out of that and let us see what it meant to understand a relationship with him and by his awesome deeds. And again, what the, the awesome deeds, he just even just in this room of the testimony of how God saved the people even in this room tonight and what incredible things he had to do the signs, the wonders to break into your life and this person's life to do what he could to redeem us out of those things. David says, verse 23, And now, O Lord, the word which you've spoken concerning your servant, your servant concerning his house, he says, Lord, let it be established forever. And I like verse 23, he says, Lord, do as you have said. Lord, you said it. And he's saying, Lord, it humbles me. I don't understand it. I don't deserve it. But he says, by faith, I want to experience it. So he says, Lord, do as you've said. You've made these promises, now asking, Lord, I accept them. Do these things by your power. Verse 24, so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel is Israel's God, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. Again, I love the heart of David. Notice what was always one of his chief concerns. It was the glory of God. 
He's saying, Lord, don't work in these ways and bless my life and do these things and show your power through me in such a way where my name would be great. He says, verse 24, Lord, let these things be established that your name may be magnified forever. The people would talk about you, that they would say, wow, look what God has done. Look what God was able to do through that humble, meager life of that individual and, and, and how he worked in David's life like that. Again, just the testimony of the grace of God. Again, like I said before, like a trophy of grace that David would just be kind of set before the world. People would go, wow, look at the victory God accomplished in that life and what he was able to do through a humble man like David. And he says, Lord, magnify your name. For you, he says, oh my God, have revealed this to your servant. Take notice, God's a God of revelation, and we should ask at times, Lord, reveal things to me. I want to know your will. I want to know your will for my life, Lord, that I might walk in it. He says, Lord, you have revealed this to your servant, that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, he says, you are God, And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. That is for eternity. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. You see David's uh, sort of declaration of faith there as he's praying. He's saying, Lord, I would never think that these things could ever come to pass in my life. These promises, these predictions, these things that you're saying you're going to do in my life or accomplish in my life. He said, I would never even just venture to think that you could possibly do something that, but he says, Lord, you promised this. You promised, he says, this goodness of yours to your servant. I'm just a humble servant, Lord, but you promised these good things to your servant. So he says, Lord, since you've done that and you've been pleased to bless, he says, then Lord, he says, would you bless? Would you do it? I'm asking, Lord, I, I, by humble grace, Lord, he said, if you want to bless, then I'm just saying, please bless, Lord. Please bring about your blessing in my life. And you know, I think we can take that same kind of sentiment, and you can attach that to any promise of God in the word of God and say, Lord, I, this promise, it blows my, Lord, you say right here, that is the result of the way that I live before you and how I'm managing my resources. Lord, you say right there that my God shall meet all of my need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, okay, then then bless, Lord. You promised that, so Lord, I'm just going to take you at your promise. Lord, you say Psalm 37 that you know that you've never forsaken the, the righteous or caused their descendants to beg for bread. So, Lord, okay, I'm taking that promise, Lord. And again, whatever promise of God we may find in the word of God, we can realize certainly under the new covenant all the more these exceedingly great and precious promises are given to us by grace, just like these specific promises were given to David. And we can expect by faith alone, Lord, if you say you want to bless in that way, I know I don't deserve it, but Lord, bring it on. Bless me. I want your blessing. I I receive your promise and want to see it come to pass for your glory and for my welfare. Well, chapter 18, I'm just going to scan through it quickly. Just a quick record of some of David's battles and we'll wrap up with that this evening. It tells us after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath 
and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. Now, what's going to happen here, if you remember back in chapter 17, verse 10, one of the promises God made to David was he said to David in verse 10 of chapter 17, I will subdue all your enemies. That was part of the promise given to David in the midst of this revelation and communication. So David took that to heart. And David said, okay, Lord, if you said that you're going to give me victory in battle and subdue my enemies by faith, I'm going to act upon that. I'm going to act upon that, believing that you're going to give me victory as I engage my enemies. And so David first heads to the West. And again, perennial enemies of Israel, the Philistines. We've seen it many times in our studies in the Old Testament. He goes and he takes and he captures the capital city. Gath, one of the main chief cities of the Philistines, and subdues them as God gives him power. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute, so he conquers to the east, expanding the kingdom. Verse 3, and David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven thousand horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So that speaks of him then pursuing and conquering territory to the north. So he moves to the west and to the east. Now he's expanding up towards the Syrian area in the north, conquering different territories, defeating the enemies that would come against Israel so repeatedly. Verse 5 says, When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David then killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Syria, that is, uh, fortified military posts in the areas in the north of the Syria as he expanded the territory of the kingdom under God's direction. In Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians also became David's servants, and notice, and brought him tribute. So David's conquering enemies, These enemies are now paying tribute to the kingdom of Israel, enriching the nation. Verse 6 says, So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Notice, as he was fighting the Lord's battles, he had the Lord's help and the Lord's protection. Some translations render that the Lord helped David wherever he went. Others' translations render it the Lord preserved or kept, shielded David wherever he went. Again, and these are battles in close quarters. Uh, These aren't standing behind barricades and launching. This is like hand-to-hand combat stuff, swinging swords and chucking spears. And I mean, this is close combat. And they're fighting these battles, and yet the Lord is preserving David wherever he went. In some ways, David was safer on the battlefield than he was in the palace because he was fighting the Lord's battles. And I'll tell you something, sometimes we are much safer in the center of the will of God fighting our enemies and fighting the Lord's battles and doing what God's telling us to do than we are sitting on our, what's the right term to say in the pulpit? You get the drift on that posterior part of your body doing nothing, being a pew potato. Sometimes we are much safer being engaged in the Lord's works. And doing the things that God wants us. Well, there are so many battles. I got so many enemies. Oh, now I'm fighting this and I'm fighting that and I'm fighting. Well, right. But in some ways, by fighting those battles, the Lord is with you. He's preserving you wherever you're going and he's protecting you from greater enemies like idle time 
and getting engaged in things that maybe we shouldn't sometimes, sitting around, like Bathsheba episodes and stuff. That's when David got in trouble, remember? So David's out, he's engaged, he's involved. He took the shields, it says, verse 7, of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer, brought them back to Jerusalem. Also from Tibhah and from Chun, the cities of Hadadezer, David brought a large amount of bronze, notice, with which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. So this tribute and spoils of war, the precious metals of bronze and gold and silver were laid up for the temple construction as David fought these battles. And when Tau, verse 9, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he then sent Hadurim, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Tau and Hadurim brought with him all kinds of articles. Notice, more precious metals. He's trying to kind of pay David off now and build a friendship with him, an alliance. He brought articles of gold and silver and bronze. And what did David do? King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had brought from all the nations of Edom and Moab and Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek. What's happening? David's accumulating all these precious metals and gold and silver and wealth to use for the construction of the temple. And very beautifully here, David hears, David, you can't build the temple. And David says, okay, but that doesn't mean I can't prefabricate it and purchase all the materials and create all the plans and do everything I can to assist and facilitate and help and support Solomon to fulfill what, what really I know is God's heart. And what a beautiful thing here. David goes out and uses who he is by the will of God, which was a warrior to fight battles. And God told David, you can't build the temple because you're a man of war. And, and David's hands were covered in blood. But yet David used what he was by the will of God to help others to still do the works of God. He's dedicating all these things for the temple of the Lord, preparing for Solomon. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and put garrisons or military posts in Edom. Again, now that's to the south. They're gaining more territory. And he became one of David's servants, Again, verse 13, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went and David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to his people. And Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief over the army. He was sort of the highest ranking military official or general. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. That would kind of be like a chief of staff, what we would think of in the cabinet of an administration today. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, they were the priests. And Shavshah was the scribe, the one who recorded the word of God. And Benaniah, as the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And those were sort of uh, David's chief ministers by his, the king's side. Again, the idea is that they were kind of like the secret service. Uh, these men were certain individuals who kind of protected David and became his uh, security service to make sure that David was safe and that no harm happened to him and God's hand could continue to be upon him and work through his life. But again, just beautiful to see here, David engaged in everyday affairs, but yet in the midst of those everyday affairs, God was accomplishing divine purposes. 
He's fighting battles. He's conquering territory for the nation. But in the midst of those things, he's acquiring things to be used to facilitate God's purposes and God's plans. And again, there's that repeated refrain, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Faced a lot of enemies, a lot of conflict, a lot of battles. And you know what? In our life, we face a lot of enemies and battles and conflicts, spiritual warfare and difficulties. And right like David, seems like day by day, whether to the north or the south or the east or the west, we're trying to live the daily grind. And it's like, Lord, I don't know if I can make it through this. But look, if you're walking in step with the will of the Lord, He will preserve you. Wherever you go and whatever you're up to. Just stay close to the Lord and trust His preserving hand. Doesn't mean there's going to be an absence of conflict, challenges, hardships, and battles. But what I can assure you is God hasn't changed and He will preserve you. He will help you. He will keep you and I through those things. Let's stand together. Let's pray.